Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Last month, U.S. President Joe Biden signed a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill into law. The crisis of deep human suffering is in plain sight. And there's no time to waste. We have to act and we have to act now. The so-called American Rescue Plan was one of the biggest stimulus packages in history, and it enjoyed strong popular support. The bill includes $1,400 checks for most Americans. It extends jobless benefits through the summer. They were set to run out. It also lowers the cost of health insurance for those relying on Obamacare. There's money for schools, small businesses, for the vaccine effort. The stimulus seems to have put the U.S. economy on track for a rapid recovery. What we're seeing now is really an economy that seems to be at an inflection point, and that's because of you know, widespread vaccination and strong fiscal support, strong monetary policy support. But Biden isn't done yet. His administration has now put forward an even bigger spending proposal, the American Jobs Plan. It's big, yes. It's bold, yes. And we can get it done. Biden calls this an investment in America that will create millions of good jobs, rebuild the country's infrastructure, and position the United States to outcompete China. But the $2.3 trillion bill is far from uncontroversial. I've heard from my Republican friends, uh, many of them say it's too big. They say, why not focus on traditional infrastructure? Fix what we've already got. I want to tell you my view. We are America. We don't just fix for today, we build for tomorrow. Hi there. Hi. Here to help us understand Biden's proposal and the debate surrounding it is James Galbraith. How are you? Well, I don't know. I was allowing for advancing age and general decline of standards. I think I'm all right. You don't look a day over 30. James is an economist and professor of government at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. He joins us from his home in Austin, Texas. James, the Biden administration just passed a historic stimulus package. And unless there's actually a new surge in coronavirus infections, both growth and hiring should keep accelerating. Yet Biden has wasted no time in proposing another round of massive government spending. Is this really necessary? Well, I think it is necessary. First of all, I would I would modestly differ with the characterization of the uh, American Rescue Plan as a stimulus. That was a measure which effectively placed, placed income in people's pockets that needed it, uh, got some uh, funds into the hands of state and local governments, uh, and did a number of other things, which essentially ensures against a, uh, you know, a further set of major distress in the remaining months of the pandemic. This is good. It's not really a stimulus package. Uh, the stimulus package is a, a term that was, you know, stimulus is a term that's used. It actually dates from the period of the 60s and 70s. And the idea is that people are not spending enough to uh, promote economic activity, particularly manufacturing activity. Uh, and our problems right now are a little bit different because the structure of the economy is different. We now live in a, a, a quite a different 
economy embedded in a larger global setting. And given the peculiar effects of the of the pandemic, it's necessary to take this sort of second step and really think about what kind of uh, what kind of economic structure we're going to have going forward. The American Jobs Plan is often referred to as an infrastructure package, and there is good reason for that. Among the key investments, $620 billion for transportation infrastructure, $650 billion to expand broadband, the electric grid, green energy, and clean water. It includes rebates to make it cheaper to buy electric cars, and it boosts the numbers of charging stations across the nation from 100,000 to 500,000. By one estimate, it could create 2.3 million jobs by 2024. The plan's been compared with his predecessor Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal following the Great Depression of the 1930s. James, the package includes hundreds of billions of dollars worth of infrastructure spending, which covers not only roads and bridges, but also water and broadband. And this type of infrastructure spending usually receives bipartisan support. How likely is it that the Biden administration will be able to get Republicans on board for at least part of the plan? My impression right now is that the Republicans are still in uh, last-ditch mode and that the uh, basic political pattern of the first bill, which is that Republicans, with one or two exceptions, will not vote for it. That would be my my instinct. This is going to have to be done uh, with Democratic votes if it's going to happen at all, which is probably have to be done through reconciliation. That's too bad. At the same time, let's go and look at the at the merits of the case. Infrastructure spending in the United States, it tailed off from sustainable levels about 40 years ago. Major efforts that were made in the 60s to provide kind of modern uh, systems uh, simply were not pursued or renewed or expanded on in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. And here we are uh, in a country where we have major, major deficiencies. So things have to be done. The plan also goes beyond traditional infrastructure. And so for one example, it includes a major commitment to strengthen America's care economy, including a $400 billion investment on home and community-based care. How could this reshape the COVID-19 recovery and the U.S. economy going forward? Well, one of the problems that we're going to have, if you look at the way jobs were created in the post in the last 15 years, but especially in the period since the financial crisis in 2009, 2010, almost all of those jobs were in services. And you could see this in every American town and city uh, with a proliferation of uh, you know restaurants and bars and cafes and nail salons and tattoo parlors I mean, at various levels of service provision. This proved to be a very fragile uh, form of economic activity and very vulnerable to the COVID uh, debacle because, of course, people couldn't go out and do those things anymore. And it, you know, all of these enterprises they have fixed costs, they have rent to pay, they have utility bills, and they can hang on for a while. And some of them are still hanging on, but in many cases, they didn't. And in many cases, if you look at particularly big urban concentrations, Midtown Manhattan, where we know that people are not going to be coming back to office buildings the way they were before. Uh, the structure of these economies is going to change, and the employment opportunities that were there are probably not coming back to the full extent that, that we need them. So 
and we think about, okay, where do we need things? Uh, then, you know, you think about the care economy. Uh, that gives a chance for people to make a living doing something useful and important. You can say the same thing about education. You can say the same thing about a lot of environmental work. Obviously, infrastructure creates jobs too, but I would be careful because we're not going to be doing uh, the, the kind of pick and shovel work that the Civilian Conservation Corps did in the 1930s so to the same extent. So we need to think about, first of all, how to find jobs for people, what kind of jobs we need. We need to think about how the services that we do need can be reconstituted so that we have viable and livable and agreeable communities. All of that's going to, be, I think, should be part of this. Obviously, the care issue meets the need in two respects. It meets a, a need for to get people care, uh, and it also meets a need to provide uh, employment opportunities for a great many people. As the title indicates, jobs are central to the proposal. Specifically, it aims to create good quality jobs. That means workers should earn prevailing wages in safe workplaces. It also means they have the right to unionize. I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class, and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the but Republicans plane. insist that unions undermine competitiveness, and recent attempts by workers to unionize haven't always been successful. Efforts to unionize an Amazon warehouse in Alabama are officially over for now after workers at a facility in Bessemer voted no to forming a collective bargaining unit. But Amazon aggressively campaigned against the union ahead of the vote. According to Stuart Applebaum, the president of the Retail, Wholesale and Department Store Union, the company's actions prevented a free and fair election. I think that what we have seen is that Amazon left no stone unturned and try to make people afraid to vote for the union. Despite these challenges, however, James thinks unions are essential to creating good quality jobs. Well, I think it's a very important from the standpoint of restoring some balance in our political life, as well as our balance in our economic life, that workers be able to unionize. The extent to which that will happen in the structure of the economy that we have is going to be limited by the fact that many people are working in relatively small shops. Amazon warehouse is one thing, but you know a network of uh, restaurants and cafes and so forth is something else entirely. So I, I, I think this is an important step, but one has to recognize that we're not going to go back, perhaps unfortunately, to the kind of uh, strong uh, unions that we had in the post-war period when 30% of the workforce was in major manufacturing activity. And there, of course, you know, the union is a is an extremely important part, not only advance the interests of the workers, but also to maintain the integrity of the of the whole process. Another critical problem Biden's proposal aims to address is climate change. But many progressives say it doesn't go far enough. It certainly doesn't match the climate ambition of the Green New Deal. How well do you think the American Jobs Plan balances the need to create a sustainable economy with other economic imperatives? Well, I think there's still a great many things that will need to be done. So I tend to agree that it doesn't go far enough. You know, I think one needs to think of these things as phases. And there are a number of things that need to be done 
that are not going to be completed by, uh, you know, by what could be put on the table effectively now. We have a lot of advanced sectors in this country, or the remnants of them, who are dependent on global markets for doing things like commercial aircraft, worldwide energy networks. One can talk about armaments is another big one. The way the American economy is structured, you know, some of our most capable, best trained people and resources and equipment and scientific talent doing things which need to be repurposed to address the needs that we actually have, of which climate change is a, is a, is a major priority. And I don't think this actually does that. Climate isn't the only area where progressives say the plan doesn't go far enough. While they generally praise Biden's vision, many say that more investment will be needed to realize it. That 2.2 trillion, 2.25 over eight years, I have serious concerns that it's not enough to realize the very inspiring vision that Biden has advanced. And some progressive proposals that could advance Biden's goals aren't mentioned at all. James, I want to switch now and I want to focus on what the Biden plan doesn't include. And you've long advocated a job guarantee. What impact would this have and how might this fit with Biden's legislative agenda? Well, I think the job guarantee, which has been uh, a project of very valuable colleague uh, at Bard College, Pavlina Cherneva, is a really well thought through uh, structural reform for the economy. And w- what it would do, it would be to ensure that anybody who wants a job can get one at a decent but not you know, relatively modest wage, you call it $15 an hour or something like that, working in the public or nonprofit sectors and doing something useful. And that way people, rather than sitting at home, sending out resumes and looking for jobs and so forth, they're actually working they maintain an income, they maintain their work habits, if you like. When employers need workers, they always like to hire people who are already working. They don't like to hire people who've been sitting at home. In good times, there wouldn't be all that many people who would be in the job guarantee. In worse times, it would grow automatically to meet uh, you know, the needs of people who need work and incomes. And that strikes me as of just a much better way of proceeding. Obviously, you still need unemployment insurance for people who can't take up the job guarantee. You still need a range of other things. But on the whole, it would be a very productive use of human resources. And as again, it, from a standpoint of the, of the working population, it re- reduces your insecurity. We'll be right back. We know you've been alarmed and exhausted by the turmoil of the past year in the United States and all over the world. We saw outright lies fuel doubt in our elections and spark an insurrection. We saw international leaders like the U.S. and the U.K. screw up their response to the global pandemic. And we're seeing strongman tactics threaten democratic institutions in countries like Brazil, India, and Hungary. At the same time, people have mobilized like never before to defend democracy, promote civil rights, and address the climate crisis. Does this fill you with a mix of anxiety and hope? There's a new podcast from the University of Virginia that's helping listeners to make sense of it all. It's called Democracy in Danger. Each week, hosts Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan unpack the threats facing democracy and ask what we can do about it. 
They cover topics like successful protest movement with legendary activist Sergei Popovich, the radical idea of degrowing the economy with anthropologist Jason Hickel, and the terror of cyberstalking with MacArthur Fellow Danielle Citron. Visit dendanger.org for more and subscribe to Democracy in Danger on any podcast app. A job guarantee would not only reduce economic anxiety for many workers, it would also go a long way towards transforming America's social contract. James says that this would help rebuild trust between citizens and the government. That's sorely needed right now. How much do you trust the government? A new survey from the Pew Research Center finds the nation increasingly distrustful of the federal government. The unhappy fact is that Americans' trust in just about all our institutions has been in a long, almost unbroken decline. But the real story here is how long that distrust has been festering. But rewriting the social contract is no easy feat. The last time this happened in America was in the 1930s, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal transformed the relationship between workers and the federal government. We put a national shoulder under a national problem. We undertook a great program of work, work relief, paid for by the federal government, thus helping every community to do a thousand necessary jobs which individual communities could not afford to do by themselves. James says that the jury's still out on whether Biden can follow in FDR's footsteps. The New Deal was a reconstruction of what had been a comprehensive collapse over four years of the previous order, and really over much longer than that. In the American South, there had not been any serious development since the Civil War. Uh, And the New Deal set the course, which we've been on ever since. I look out my window here, and I can point out monuments from the New Deal uh, right in front of my my face here and at the University of Texas and in my community. And everybody in America can do the same thing, by and large. It's amazing. So I think the New Deal sets a standard Uh, that we ought to be looking at now. Uh, It was Roosevelt's response to communism and to fascism. And it was a hugely, I mean, it was this response that set us on the path, made it possible to mobilize for the Second World War when that time came, and set the the groundwork, laid the the basis for 30 or 40 years of of pretty good growth and and social development after, after the war. We tried to retreat to some imaginary period before the New Deal when the government was not a factor in the economy and there wasn't a partnership between public and private sectors and when bankers could do whatever they want. And the result of that has been just disastrous. uh, And we see accelerating crises as a consequence of the then met by accelerating bailouts, which is what happened in 2020 when the when the markets collapsed, uh, as well as you know, previously in 2007, 2008. We simply can't go on doing this. We have to recognize that we've got to reconstruct a functioning economic network, an ecology of economic activity that is not something which is dominated by by predatory finance. Does this bill, do these bills uh, meet that test? Uh, not yet, but I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, we've had 30 or 40 years of 
really being guided by a fundamentally destructive ideology. Uh, and now we're sitting in the world and we're looking and saying, hey, not everybody else is doing the same thing. You know, you've got to be clear about this. Their results are a lot better than ours. As James notes, Biden's plans may not get the U.S. all the way to a New Deal-style transformation, but they certainly involve a New Deal-style spending. In today's dollars, Biden has already spent more in his first 100 days in office than FDR did in his. A lot of folks are losing hope. And I believe the American people are looking right now to their government for help, to do our job, to not let them down. So I'm going to act. I'm going to act fast. But as the costs continue to rise, Biden faces a familiar question. James, the Biden administration has yet to get its infrastructure bill through Congress, and it already has another spending package in the pipeline, the American Families Plan. How does Biden plan to pay for all this spending? Well, how do you pay for it is an old trap for progressive legislation. I remember being at the press conference in 1976 when Senator Humphrey and and my boss, Congressman Royce, introduced the Full Employment and Balanced Growth Act that became the Humphrey-Hawkins Act. And the press was there, and the first thing they said to Humphrey was, how are you going to pay for it? Well, the answer to this is you have real resources, and you want to use them. You want to bring people to work, and that is the objective. The financing of it is is a bookkeeping exercise. Keynes said this brilliantly. He said, anything you can actually do, you can afford to do. If you can do it, if you have the people, if you have the resources, if you have the organizational ability, and you can achieve it, once you've done it, once you've got it in place, it's there. It's 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 a benefit from which you can gain uh, uh, welfare over a long long period of time. Again, I I, I think that the question of how you pay for it uh, is best answered by saying that that when the United States government wants to do something, uh, it needs to assess the physical organizational. Uh, uh, capacity and priority. And if the project meets those tests, you pay for it by writing checks and getting people together to do what needs to be done. That's how societies uh, prosper. It's uh, not by doing nothing and and pretending that you don't have the money, but by doing things that you need to have done. Nonetheless, the Biden administration plans to offset its spending by raising taxes. To pay for it, the president wants to, in part, raise taxes, including boosting the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent. He's also calling for an international minimum tax rate of 21 percent. Now, that is meant to keep big multinational companies from doing something many have done for years, use offshore loopholes to pay fewer taxes. Biden had long promised to undo many of the tax cuts that Republicans put into place in 2017, including restoring a top tax rate of 39.7%. 6%. Biden had also pledged to tax capital gains at that same rate as ordinary income for households making more than a million dollars. Even with measures to offset costs, fears of runaway inflation are on the rise, and not just among Republicans. Neo-Kensians like Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary during Bill Clinton's administration, have also been sounding the alarm. So it seems to me that what was kindling is now igniting. And I am much more worried that we'll have either inflation or we will have a pretty dramatic fiscal monetary collision. But James says that these fears are overblown. 
After all, it's not the 1970s anymore. What Larry's saying is that back in the 1960s, the idea that economists had was that if you let drove down the unemployment rate, the inflation rate would rise pretty much uh, mechanically. It was called the Phillips curve. It was an invention and part of, of, of Larry's uncle, Paul Samuelson, along with Robert Solo at MIT. The reality was that it was not a good idea. It was not a good solid construct in the 1960s. It completely fell apart in the 70s and in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. It didn't exist at all. Uh, there's no evidence to support this proposition. It is possible that you can get uh, some inflation, but the risk there, if you think about where we stand, is not in anything's going to happen in the domestic economy. If we have surplus funds and people are using them for purchases, it's likely, first of all, to go into land, to go into um, stocks. Uh, those things don't show up at an inflation rate, although prices may go up uh, for housing, for houses and so forth. That's the price of an existing house rises. That's not part of our inflation measure. They go into imports. Those the prices are not going to rise. That may or may not be a good thing. Uh, they go into savings. That doesn't have an effect on inflation. So it's hard, very hard to see where the inflation would come from. But simply from uh, giving people the means to live and, and doing what needs to be done to strengthen the basis of the economy is, is wrong. That's not going to be inflationary. In fact, as you reduce the cost of, let's say, uh, communications by putting broadband out, reducing the cost of transportation by improving uh, your infrastructure, uh, you're actually reducing costs for businesses, for households, and that's anti-inflationary. Uh, so I think Larry is pursuing a, a mechanical analogy from that's, that's, that was not good when it was invented 50 years ago, but it's certainly 50 years out of date now. Stephanie Kelton, who, like you, is a former economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, has a slightly different concern. She thinks the inflation risk stems from the likelihood that the United States won't have enough available resources or room in the economy to meet these ambitious investment goals. Does she have a point? Well, it's a question of where the resources are, what are being what the needs are. It's also partly a question of timing. I don't see uh, that we are going to be short or that we're going to run into rapidly escalating prices on things like construction materials or energy. Uh, obviously, if you if you do a lot of building, you are going to use energy. Uh, there's no, this is not a, a major risk right now. You can get, as we did in 2006, 2007 into 2008, you can get speculative run-ups in commodity prices. That could be something to worry about. Uh, you People, I think, don't remember it much, but uh, about it, so it was quickly overtaken by other events. But in the summer of 2008, the price of oil was bid up to $148 a barrel, which would be about twice, a little more twice to what it is now. Uh, what was that about? That was uh, a speculative move based upon the ability to uh, purchase oil forward uh, and store it. Uh, keep it in the ground, put it on uh, in storage tanks, put it on ships and move them a little bit more slowly across the ocean uh, in the hopes that when you got there to sell it, uh, the price would be higher. That problem you deal with by regulating. So I'm an, as much of an inflation hardliner as anybody, uh, but I see the problem as coming from specific, usually manageable issues. Whatever the real scale of the risks, the fact remains that getting the American Job Plan passed will be an uphill battle. 
there is no doubt Republicans will do everything in their power to resist it. What we see with this new definition of infrastructure, the $2 trillion package that the Biden administration is pushing, is really a liberal wish list. It's, it's pretty clear that it's about a whole lot of things other than infrastructure. It is a massive expansion of the government financed on the backs of the American taxpayers with taxes that will hurt the economy and cost us jobs. Even among Democrats, there are likely spoilers. Democrats could push the infrastructure bill through the chamber without any Republican support, just like they did with the COVID relief package. But it might not be easy. The Senate is split, remember, 50-50. So Democrats would need everyone they've got in the Senate to say yes. Enter Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. He's already expressing concerns about the plan to pay for the bill by raising the tax rate on corporations. If I don't vote to get on, it's not going anywhere. Bottom line tonight, Washington is gearing up for a bruising fight. And time is not on Biden's side. Democrats hold very narrow majorities in the House and the Senate, and both parties are eyeing the midterm elections next year. James, I want to finish by considering what will happen if the critics win. What would failure to pass the American Jobs Plan mean for the U.S. recovery? Well, it would be a terrible missed opportunity. It would, it would probably mean that the experience would resemble the period after the great financial crisis, uh, the Obama-Trump years, uh, in which there was slow expansion, a lot of people left behind. But the most important thing is that we would not have the improvement in our in quality of life, in our infrastructure, in our ability to face climate change that we desperately need. So the, the advantage here is of doing things is that we can actually start dealing with problems that we need to deal with. We'll be better off economically, but also much better off socially and environmentally if we do that. James, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Great to talk to you. That was James Galbraith, an economist and professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.